We call it the Last Supper. Jewish people call it the Passover. But how can we hope to understand all the layers of symbolism? Is it possible that non-Jewish believers might be missing aspects of the Passover? What if we could sit down and get our questions answered? Well, we'll do that coming up here on The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Welcome. I'm John Geiger, promising you that uh, Charlie Dyer's devotional later on is one you're going to be talking about over dinner. We're going to answer your Bible questions and a whole lot more. But maybe you're wondering, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Yeah, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through the ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. All right, well, last week we talked about the start of Ramadan, but this April actually sees the intersection of three major religious holidays, Ramadan, Passover, and Easter. Some are concerned that this could generate more violence in the Middle East. What's the basis for that concern, and what's being done to kind of hold passions in check, Charlie? Well, religious passion does increase during these kind of holidays. One reason comes from the increase in pilgrims and visitors. The number of Christians who flock to Jerusalem ticks upward during the Easter season. This year, Easter will be celebrated in Western churches on April 17, and in Eastern Orthodox churches on April 24. And of course, this is an important time for Palestinian Christians as well, but it's not usually the Christians who generate an uptick in violence. The more worrisome issue is the confluence of Ramadan and Passover. Passover occurs around Easter, and this year it happens to fall on April 17. And it's then followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Ramadan began last Saturday and continues into May. The concern, of course, is that for the most religious Muslims and Jews, the heart of the issue becomes the status of the Temple Mount. More than 100,000 Muslims gather on the Temple Mount to hold Friday prayers throughout Ramadan. Meanwhile, many of the Jewish faithful look forward to the day when a third temple will be erected on that site. Each side views the other as the obstacle standing in the way of their religious and political aspirations. And this is the time when those differences seem to come into sharp focus. Israel will be watching closely to make sure neither group does something that could anger the other side and boil over into violence. At the same time, they'll also be on high alert for any provocations by Hamas in Gaza or Hezbollah in Lebanon. Israeli leaders will be happy when the calendar flips over to May and they can view all three holidays in the rearview mirror. Well, we haven't talked recently about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As you survey the landscape with a unique perspective from Israel where you've been traveling, what possible impact could that still have on the Middle East? Yeah, I need to start by saying the invasion isn't a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, as some have suggested. I do believe Russia plays a role in end-time events, but its invasion of Ukraine wasn't predicted in the Bible. Now, having said that, I think Russia's invasion could potentially impact current events in the Middle East in a number of ways. One showed up almost immediately when Russia threatened to scuttle the West's nuclear agreement with Iran unless the West made it clear they wouldn't interfere in Russia's right to sell arms to Iran and to work with Iran on its nuclear program. 
Russia could also use its influence with Iran to create greater problems for the West in other areas besides the nuclear talks. Uh, This could include greater cooperation in Syria to pressure Israel, but it could also include encouraging Iran to create problems for the West in terms of Gulf oil production, making the West even more dependent on Russian oil and gas. And even apart from Russia, Iran could use the turmoil in Ukraine to push its own agenda in the Gulf region. Uh, That could include pressuring their allies, Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Houthis to launch attacks against the Gulf states and possibly against Israel. Uh, Still another impact on the Middle East could come through Turkey, which has been trying to walk a fine line between being part of NATO while purchasing military equipment from Russia. Now, could Turkey use this to try and increase its presence in Syria or to bolster its support for Hamas or even offer its help to the Gulf states? The issue with Ukraine and with Russia, along with uh, lowering our country's profile in the Middle East, let's create a power vacuum. And a number of nations could very well use this opportunity to try to expand their influence. And that uh, puts Russia at the top of the list. Charlie, I'm curious, as you have traveled throughout uh, Israel, do you sense a different perception on the part of Israelis as they view the invasion of Russia into Ukraine? Any difference between their perception and and that of uh, the West? I do. Uh, In the West, it's almost universal against Russia and Russian aggression. In Israel, it's more nuanced. Uh, They do sense many are opposed to what Russia has done in Ukraine, uh, but there are also a million Jews who came from Russia And not all of them are uh, seeing this in a negative way against Russia. But by and large, most uh, Jews are concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. And they've done some things to take in Ukrainians here as refugees. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar. I'm John Geiger, and we're working our way through a list of stories that are based in the Middle East this week. After a 40-year odyssey, an archaeologist now claims to have uncovered the original, quote, home of God. It's on Mount Ebal. What did he discover, and is it genuine? Well, this story is interesting, but I also think we need to take it with a healthy dose of skepticism. The Bible tells us that following Israel's entry into the Promised Land, Joshua gathered the tribes between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to renew the covenant. And according to Joshua 8, part of the service included the building of an altar of uncut stones on Mount Ebal. Now, fast forward to 1980 when an Israeli archaeologist uncovered a site on the slopes of Mount Ebal near its peak. Uh, The site contained a large pile of stones surrounded by a series of walls. Scattered around the site were thousands of pieces of pottery from the early Iron Age, which is the time corresponding to Israel's settlement in the land. Preliminary excavations appear to confirm the site was an early altar, and this archaeologist is insisting that the altar is the one built by Joshua. However, Most archaeologists dismiss his proposed identification based on their rejection of the historicity of the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua. Now, up to this point, I don't have a problem with what the archaeologist has proposed. This could perhaps be the altar built by Joshua, but the archaeologist also believes the site was more than just an altar. He claims a temple was built at the site and that this was the place God intended in Deuteronomy when he said Israel was to worship at the place he will choose. Now, there's two problems with this assertion. Uh, The first is that Joshua's visit to the site was during the time of the conquest. Israel wasn't settled in the land when the altar was built, so it's hard to imagine they took time to build a temple in what was still disputed land. And second, his theory ignores the rest of the book of Joshua, along with Judges and 1 Samuel, which report that the tabernacle was permanently placed in Shiloh, not on Mount Ebal. Shiloh was the first spot God chose uh, where his presence was to dwell among his people in the land, and then it was later replaced by Jerusalem. 
Now, it's possible archaeologists have uncovered the site of Joshua's altar, and later someone could have built a cultic center at the site. But it wasn't built by Joshua, and it certainly wasn't the site chosen by God to dwell among his people. Now, this could also relate to the so-called curse tablet discovered at that site, but we'll talk about that in a more detailed fashion in a later program. Before we get to our final story, I just want to remind you our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We really enjoy hearing how people are using this broadcast in a variety of settings, in a variety of ways. People have said to us, you know, it's it's helped to uh, solve a discussion, maybe a, even a dispute with a friend. It's helped me uh, teach a Bible lesson, preach a sermon. Whatever God has done in and through your life in cooperation with this program, we'd love to hear about it. Share it in an email to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Well, Ford has begun to install an Israeli system that produces water out of air as an option on its trucks. Charlie, this sounds like a story that should have been aired on April Fool's Day, but it's actually another significant story from Amazing Israel. So tell us about it. Yeah, Ford's developing a line of off-grid adventure recreational vehicles, which they recently displayed at a convention in Las Vegas. Uh, This line of Ford Ranger pickup trucks are designed to be off-road and off-grid and will be marketed to outdoor enthusiasts. And one need that those kind of vehicles have is the ability to generate their own safe drinking water. Uh, Ford approached Israeli-based WaterGen, which is one of the leaders in generating water directly from the atmosphere, to see if they could supply a portable system for the truck. And they have. WaterGen developed what they're calling the Mobile Box. It's the world's first vehicle-on-board water-generating system to be pre-installed in these trucks. The Mobile Box can generate over 6.5 gallons of fresh drinking water per day, literally out of thin air. All it needs is a 12-volt power supply, which the truck supplies. Whether someone's camping, on a road trip, or working outdoors, the mobile box from WaterGen through this partnership with Ford means they can always have fresh water without having to carry it along. And that sounds like another very real-life solution from Amazing Israel. Wow, that is impressive. How, how big is that thing? Have you seen a picture of it, Charlie? Any guess? Uh, yeah, and it's, it's not that large. It, it, again, it doesn't take up very much of the space in the bed of the truck. Interesting. And that's a look at Amazing Israel and stories based in the Middle East. Coming up on The Land and the Book, a conversation about Passover. It's going to come alive for you as we sit down with Greg Savitt. You and I call it the Last Supper. Jewish people call it the Passover. What can we understand better? How can we work through the layers of symbolism embedded in this great story? It's all ahead on The Land and the Book. We call it the Last Supper. Jewish people call it the Passover. But what's with all the symbolism? Is it possible there are aspects of the Passover that non-Jewish believers might be missing? Hey, what if we could sit down and get our questions answered? We're about to next. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with a quick thought on better ways to connect spiritually with our Jewish friends. So you're a Christian, and you're only vaguely familiar with the Jewish calendar and their holidays. You don't really understand them. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to just express your lack of understanding and to ask them to enlighten you? Justin Crone of Chosen People Ministries, is it okay to come to my Jewish friend with a position of ignorance on my part? Oh, totally okay. Uh, And I think uh, they appreciate it. 
sometimes they might feel maybe a little intimidated or, or embarrassed that maybe they don't know as much. Mm. But allow that to happen. Ask the question. Yeah. And really ask, what do you do? for? What are some of your favorite memories of celebrating Passover yeah. or Hanukkah, whatever it may be? And just allow them to talk. And this is a part of being a friend. Um, this is about getting to know your, your friends. Uh, so ask questions and, again, see where God leads with that. Sounds to me like this is an opportunity to listen to them. You know, isn't this love itself? Look not on your own things, but also on the things of others. Absolutely. Take and entrust uh, what does, you know, Scripture tell us. Uh, you know, consider people, other people's interests more important than your own. Yeah. And uh, live that out in a practical way. Always great to hear from Justin Crone, who's with Chosen People Ministries. He joins us today again on The Land and the Book. Greg Savitt has worked with Jews for Jesus and Chosen People Ministries. With 22 years of Jewish evangelism experience, he's met people with all kinds of objections to Yeshua, and many of those uh, have come to know Jesus. Greg has also written about his personal journey to faith in the book, From Tradition to Eternity. Currently, Greg serves as director of Jewish evangelism for a ministry called Rock of Israel. He's one of those guys who knows a lot, but is kind enough to bring slower guys like me up to speed. Glad to have you back on the land and the book, Greg. John, it's just a blessing to be back. And, you know, Passover, I always look, God could have just said, I want you to read the book of Exodus. But no, he's so amazing. He gives us a five-hour meal hmm. with tastes and sounds that all bring forth the theme of redemption. And you will always remember the taste of horseradish in your mouth the first time or <laughs> dipping parsley into salt water. And it's just a wonderful memory. And it's such a community event. I remember my mom having all her friends and neighbors and this guy always worked late and we called him Elijah because he'd walk in late. But <laughs> And also the rabbis once said that they know the spiritual gauge of Judaism on how many people celebrate Passover. Well, for somebody newer to the faith, newer to Scripture itself, let's back up for a moment. What exactly do we mean by the Last Supper? What do we mean by Passover? Uh, bring us some insights Passover here. is the holiday based on 400 years of captivity, and God brought us out. But before he brought us out, he told us to take a one-year-old Passover lamb. And I just want to pause on that. If you read Exodus 12, you have that lamb on the 10th of the sun. And you have it for four days. And the rabbi says that you know that that lamb is without spot, without blemish, and it's undefiled. And I often think, I hope the kids weren't bonding with it, taking it out on a walk. But on that Passover evening, they would take that one-year-old Passover lamb without shedding of its bones. They would slit the throat. The blood would go down a basin. They'd use an Egyptian plant called the hyssop, and they would dip the blood. It's really interesting. If you read Exodus 12, it says... To the top of the doorpost, you do that, and the two side posts. And I know the listeners might not see this, but when it hit the top post, gravity would allow it to drop. But when you hit the two side posts, the wood would cause it to stick. Hmm. So every single home that has Passover, redemption from the blood, has the sign of a cross. Well, I think it's so powerful. Hmm. Well, what was Jesus' perspective on the Last Supper? You know, Jesus knew that his death was coming, but he made some interesting things. For example, for the cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption after the meal, this represents the body and blood of all the first Passover lambs. 
But John, he took this cup, and I guarantee you none of the disciples knew what he was doing. He said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sins. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand when he took the matzah, the one that was broken, buried, and brought back from a white cloth, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. From Passover, when people see the Last Supper, it's not meatballs and mashed potatoes. The <laughs> Last Supper is lamb, and Jesus is announcing, after he's gone, the things that we will do to remember him. And what's really interesting, in the Passover, they take this afikomen, this matzah. It's sinless. It's striped as it was striped on the wilderness, and it's pierced, and it's broken. It's wrapped in a white cloth. It's buried. A child has to return it before we have what cup? The cup of redemption. Hmm. Now, think about this, John. This always gives me goosebumps. The Redeemer of the world on the cup of redemption tells us how we have redemption through sins, and that's just so powerful. Greg Savitt serves as Director of Jewish Evangelism for Rock of Israel. He's sharing Passover insights. Many of us, Greg, have seen uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. Uh, how accurately does that portray the Passover? He was a wonderful painter, but I think he needed help with some of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Number one, they're not sitting at a table. They are lying down with like their arm on the ground and they're all sitting there. Number two, I guarantee you, they didn't have a big wonder loaf sitting in the table. It was matzah. Number three, I guarantee you they're not eating fish. They're eating lamb. And the last thing that you can see is if you look at the window, it's kind of like in the afternoon, they would have had that in the evening. And I think it's a beautiful painting, but I think, you know, that's not how it actually happened. Yeah. Well, what is the significance, again, of this spotless lamb? You know, why not just a, a pretty good lamb? Why not a, a very good lamb? It has to be perfect, and I think that's why the rabbis had it for four days, so that without spot and blemish and undefiled, and it was the perfect lamb for the slaughter in the same way that Jesus was that perfect lamb. So it had to be spotless, and I think it's interesting how it says not to break any of its bones. And I want to let you know that during the Passover, there is a part when we have the bitter herbs. We, we are very sorrowful for all the thousands of the lambs that were slain. Well, uh, turning again to the New Testament, uh, we've touched on this commemoration of the third cup. Why is that important to this conversation? And what is the covenant that Jesus made? Bring some clarity to this discussion. Well, he was bringing a new covenant, something new. And that's from Jeremiah 31. Behold, I will make a new covenant, not with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but this covenant I will put on my heart and my mind so they sin no more. This is a new covenant. He was through this cup, was showing that it's through his blood that we have remission of sins. And, you know, we still do that today. You know, from the Passover is the communion. And I think if people understand where that's from, that will really enhance their faith. And, um, you know, it was a new covenant. And it's interesting that all four of those cups have a specific meaning. And I think it shares the gospel. The first cup is the cup of sanctification or the cup of holiness. Mm -hmm. Second cup is the cup of plagues or rebellion. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the Hillel, 
or the cup of salvation or cup of praise. So if you repent and believe and you now are born again, you are a new creation. I think it's beautiful that those four cups line up again. On the second cup, which is the cup of plagues or redemption, I remember going through Hebrew school and, you know, part of the cup, the pouring out of the Mm -hmm. sins, that had to do with the Egyptian soldiers. And I remember watching that, John, and Pharaoh takes out his kid and his kid's dead in his arms. And I'm like, good, you deserve it. (laughs) You know, but think about it. How many times do you and I know what's God's will in our lives? And how many times do we say, no, I refuse, I will not? And we're just like the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful that it is the blood by reason of life that we have atonement. I'm so thankful that we are a new creation through Christ, through the blood. So I think that's very significant of the third cup. Fittingly enough, our subject is the Passover here on The Land and the Book as we continue with Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel Ministries. Well, Jesus clearly told his disciples he would have to suffer and die, and he did so more than once, Greg. Uh, Three days later, he would be raised up again. Obviously, they didn't get most of that. Do you think some of them got some of it, or was it just all 100% over their head? I just don't think they're over the head. I just think of um, if you were the inner cabinet of um, John F. Kennedy, and you know how he was Camelot and a star, and he said, you know what? I'm going to get murdered in Dallas, and then Johnson's going to take over. I just don't think that that was on their template. A lot of them— unfortunately had the Jewish notion that somehow Jesus was going to take over the Romans and reign and set up his kingdom. And that's why I believe Judas got really discouraged and he sold them out because they wanted him to take over. Even in Acts 1-6, they're like, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, he's, these guys have been with him for 40 days. Don't they get it? Hmm. The uh, Passover celebrated by Jesus, of course, involved an infamous traitor emerging right there at the scene. Uh, who was he? What was his mission? How does that factor into our, our proper understanding of, of Passover? Judas Iscariot wanted to betray Jesus because he wanted that revolution. He wanted to set up a Jewish man over the Roman people. He wanted a revolt. And, you know, some people wonder, was he saved? Was he not saved? I think that's above my pay grade, but I can tell you that when he turned them over, he had such guilt that he brought the money back. So he did have guilt. And what's interesting is, you know, the horseradish is part of the Passover. And Jesus said the one who dips his bread into the sop, most likely people believe that was the horseradish. And when he dipped that in, it said Satan entered him Mm. and then he left. Yeah. How should understanding the Passover change the way that we see Christ's sacrifice? I think that you should see that his sacrifice wasn't in a vacuum, that it had to do with the week of Passover, being at the temple, teaching then, um, having him come at night, having him taken and beaten and afflicted and whipped and dying her horrific death for our sin. And we really should have... um a really good understanding of what he went through. I don't know what you think of Mel Gibson's The Passion, but I remember watching that thinking, my goodness, it was like his back was like spaghetti. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy was just whipped. And I really think it's important for us to really recognize the pain that he went through. 
Like, for example, the first thing that happens is the shoulders are separated. Very first thing. And last summer, John, I had a bursitis. And when I moved, I cried like a baby. Hmm. And could you imagine being six hours with your arms located? Could you imagine spikes put through the most sensitive nerve endings? Could you imagine being in like a linen ephod, like naked in front of all these people, and you cannot breathe? And in order to breathe, John, you'd have to push up on a feet that's in a spike. Mm. And when you push up, your back has been whipped for 39 times. And I, I find it really healthy to just what he did for us. Yes. You know, what he really went through. It's humbling. It is, it'll enhance your faith. He ultimately loved us with his sacrifice. Yeah. Greg, you got 30 seconds. How can believers use the Passover as a bridge to sharing the Messiah with our Jewish friends? Okay, if you're at the Passover saying, hey, that's interesting. You've got a pouch with three pieces of bread. How come one becomes missing and the other two remain hidden? How come that bread is broken, which is a symbol of sinless nature? How come it's buried in a white cloth? And how come it's brought back for the third cup of redemption? That's very interesting. And how come you have three yet one? And how come that one piece of bread is removed? And how come we never talk about those other two? That's the Father, that's the Holy Spirit, and the one that became flesh and dwelt among us, that is Jesus, who was broken, buried, and brought back. And that's a look at the Passover through the eyes of Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel Ministries. I'm John Geiger, inviting you back for our next segment, Questions and Answers with Charlie Dyer, here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. You know, for many listeners, this next segment we're about to share with you is just incredibly useful, important, practical, and at times downright entertaining. That's because it's about you, your thoughts, your questions, as you open the Bible and study these passages. So much richness there. Before we get to those, though, question, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, you know, this year you can, Charlie. That's right. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Let's get to today's questions. This first one from John, who actually shares a question from his 12-year-old daughter, Amber. She wants to know if a Christian dies and goes to heaven, then what happens during the rapture? Uh, Amber feels it might be a waste to have the rapture if we're already in heaven with the Lord. Does that Christian have to come back to just get raptured? And, and what happens if that person is cremated? You know, Amber's asking some great questions, and the key is to understand the reality that every person has both a material part of our being, our body, but also an immaterial part of our being, our soul and spirit. But when a person dies, his or her body decomposes. Many are buried, some are cremated, others perish in fires or at sea, but 
Eventually, the material part of our earthly body returns, as it says in Genesis, to dust. However, the immaterial part of a believer continues to live on. You know, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, he was referring to the reality that their immaterial soul and spirit went not into the grave, but to be with the Father. Later, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, just before he breathed his last. A few verses later, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to request the body of Jesus, and he was buried in Joseph's tomb. So that matches what Paul actually says later in 2 Corinthians 5.8 about us being absent from the body and at home with the Lord. When a believer dies today, their body stays here on earth, but their soul and spirit are with Jesus in heaven. So how does that answer this daughter's perceptive question? Well, I think the answer begins in the 2 Corinthians 5 passage I just quoted. Now, in that passage, Paul compares our present body to an earthly tent, and he says the day is coming when it's going to be torn down, and he then looks toward that time and we'll have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's comparing our temporary, imperfect earthly bodies to new glorified bodies we'll receive in eternity. But when exactly do we receive that celestial, eternal body? Well, it appears from both 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that those who've died haven't yet received their permanent eternal bodies. That won't take place until the rapture when all believers, those who've died and those who are still alive, will be transformed and given their permanent glorified bodies at the same time. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I'll tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Uh, The souls and spirits of those who've died are with Jesus, but this is the moment when they're going to be reunited in new glorified bodies. And Paul says almost the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and always be with the Lord. So we actually need the rapture because that's the time when our eternal bodies and our soul and spirit are reunited and go to be with the Lord forever. All right, this one from Lori, who listens to us on YNOP, your network of praise. She says, The Land and the Book is a program I love. It's my favorite teaching program on our radio station. And I'm reading Leviticus, and I keep wondering where the wood came from for all those sacrifices to be burned. We are ranchers ourselves and occasionally have to burn a dead animal. It takes a tree to burn up a cow. Also, the oil and grain. That takes olive trees and grain fields, something nomads didn't have. Maybe they traded for them, but it didn't seem like they were on friendly terms with many tribes. Thanks for your thoughts on these questions. You know, I love those kind of questions, John. And, and in this case, uh, her practical background brings up those day-to-day problems that Israel really did face in the wilderness. Now, we're not given a complete answer, so uh, here's my best guess. Uh, first, uh, there was more wood in the wilderness than one might first imagine. The area is rugged, but shrubs and trees do grow there. You know, it's definitely not a forest, but acacia trees and other varieties of trees are found, especially in the canyon floors, which catch the runoff from the mountainsides following a hard rain. Now, Israel could find enough wood for building the tabernacle and for offering their main sacrifices, and apparently they could find enough sticks and twigs to make small cooking fires as well, although uh, the one fellow who tried to gather it up on the Sabbath in Numbers 15 uh, ran into trouble. Mm. And I suspect there were wild olive trees in the Sinai, which they could have used to prepare oil for the uh, sacrifices in the temple. Uh, But apparently the people didn't need to use olive wood to prepare the manna. In fact, in Numbers 11, it says the manna was like coriander seed, looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and and, uh, they crushed it in hand mills or in mortars. They cooked it in a pot. And it says, and it tasted like something made with olive oil, 
suggesting it wasn't made with olive oil. So it had the taste and consistency of food prepared that way, but apparently olive oil wasn't used in the preparation. Uh, However, I believe some of the commandments God gave in the wilderness were not followed until Israel actually entered the land. And here's why I think that's important. Uh, The offering of the first fruits of wheat and barley, well, they really wouldn't have been possible since they were wandering in the wilderness. They weren't planting wheat or barley. They were eating manna. I also see indirect support in Joshua 5. You know, Joshua was commanded to circumcise all the Israelite men who'd been born during the wilderness. And then it says in verse 5 of Joshua 5, they were still uncircumcised because they hadn't been circumcised on the way. Now, that suggests to me that some of God's commandments were put on hold during the wilderness wandering, but then God expected them to be followed once they reached the promised land. And very likely that also included some of those sacrifices. Great to have you listening today to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with a question now from Linny. She says, what is the difference between the terms sin, transgression, and iniquity? I'd like to know too. Yeah, well, sin has the idea of missing the mark. In fact, the understanding is we miss by falling short. It's like shooting an arrow at a target that's so far away, you miss because your arrow falls to the ground long before it gets there. Uh, That's the basic message of Romans 3.23. All have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Transgression has the idea of crossing a line as a deliberate act. It's like someone giving a child a direct command, don't write on the wall. And then the kid waits for the adult to turn his or her back and then does exactly what they're told not to do. Hmm. That's transgression. And finally, iniquity in the Bible focuses more on our nature and attitude rather than our actions. Now, I can fall short and I can cross a line, but I do so essentially because in my very essence, I have a sin nature that rebels against God. Now, all three words are used together in Psalm 32, verse 5. David writes, Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I do not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, The simplest way I can think of explaining all these is the following illustration. I sin when I shoot an arrow that falls short of the mark that's been set. I transgress when I deliberately choose to shoot that arrow, even though the instructor specifically said, don't shoot arrows right now. And I'm full of iniquity because I know in my heart of hearts that what I was about to do was wrong. I just simply wanted to do it anyway. Teresa writes, my understanding is that in the book of life, only those names of the saved, those who from eternity past were predestined for eternal life, are and ever have been written in the book of life. It has been suggested to me that the book of life contains all the names of those who have ever been created. And at the time of their death, should they not have accepted Christ's free gift of salvation, they are erased from the book of life. What would your understanding be? Yeah, I start with an assumption that the book of life is a figure of speech. It's intended to indicate God knows those who belong to him. You know, he doesn't actually need a physical book to keep track of everyone. I also note several truths about this record. First, it's a record of believers whose names have been recorded. Revelation 17, 8 says, from the foundation of the world. That speaks to God's foreknowledge and sovereign choice. Uh, Second, uh, in Revelation 3, 5, Jesus promised that none of his followers would ever be removed from that record of salvation. He actually uses a double negative, which isn't good English grammar, but in Greek, it's a very emphatic way to say it's something that can never, ever happen. The overcomer will be clothed in white garments, and he says, and I will not erase never, ever his name from the book of life. It's not a threat. It's a solemn promise from Jesus. Now, the one passage that seems to contradict all this is that Psalm 69, 28, where the psalmist asks to have his enemies blotted out of the book of life. But the second half of the verse explains what he means. He doesn't want that individual recorded with the righteous. In other words, he's asking God to make sure the individual receives the judgment due him rather than somehow being allowed to slip in with those who receive God's blessing. 
Now, because you love scripture, you're going to love the next segment. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. He's going to take us to a very specific passage, a very specific place, weld the two together in a way that you will never forget either. That's all coming up next on The Land and the Book. Here on The Land and the Book, we're quite aware that the church calendar brings us to a very significant moment this weekend, Palm Sunday. And Charlie's devotional has everything to do with that historic moment. We'll take you there in a dramatic scene. First, though, wanted to share with you a testimony from a traveler to the Holy Land. Maybe that's you. You've been to the Holy Land and you've shared an experience. It's likely yours was different than this one. Let's enjoy. The highlight for me was today at Mount Nebo. Whenever we've been to a site, a biblical site that is for certain site and not a we really think, it's been overwhelming. And to stand there and visualize Moses looking over the promised land where God in his grace let him see it, but even for a godly man like that, disobedience had consequences. It was a tremendous learning experience and reminder, very sobering reminder. And then our Moody faculty teacher in reading the scripture said something I had never thought about and that was that on the Mount of Transfiguration God showed his grace to Moses by letting him stand in the promised land. I had never thought of that in my life. What was important to me was time on Mount Arbel, uh, to be able to look over all of the land where Jesus walked and preached. And for me, it was a real time of spiritual rejuvenation, recommitment, and it was extremely emotional and moving to be able to have that time there. All kinds of experiences and reflections as we travel to Israel. Thanks for that Holy Land experience. Luke 19 takes us to a rather sobering scene, triumphant on the outside and yet tearful on the inside. Here's Charlie Dyer with today's devotional. You know, there was a time when my dad always carried a pack of wintergreen lifesavers in his pocket. He was the self-appointed candy man at our church. When little kids would walk up and ask for a lifesaver, he'd say, well, okay, you got to quote a Bible verse first. John 3.16 was the constant favorite, but a close second was John 11.35. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the English Bible. Two words could get you a lifesaver from my dad. Uh, That verse, though, as short as it is, gives us great insight into the character and compassion of Jesus. John MacArthur captured the incredible depth of meaning found in that tiny phrase as he described the word used for weeping. It's a word used only here in the New Testament. John said, in contrast to the loud wailing implied by Clio, the other word, Dakruo has the connotation of silently bursting into tears. Unlike the typical funeral mourners, Jesus' tears were generated both by his love for Lazarus and by his grief over the deadly and incessant effects of sin in a fallen world. But this is not the only time we catch Jesus weeping. Come with me as we follow Jesus on his journey over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We're beginning, amazingly enough, at the village of Bethany, where Jesus wept over the grave of Lazarus just a few short months earlier. 
as the crow flies were just about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. But before we're done, you might wish we were a crow. The road from Bethany to the top of the Mount of Olives is very steep. After just a few hundred yards, your calf muscles are beginning to tighten up and our breathing is becoming labored. And it dawns on us that most of the artistic representations of Jesus got it all wrong. He was no wimp. We're struggling to keep up as Jesus and his disciples stride quickly up the hill. Suddenly, two disciples pick up the pace, half walking, half running to the village a few hundred yards ahead. And we hear the report rippling back through the crowd. Jesus sent them ahead into the village. He said they'd find a colt tied there, and he asked him to untie it and bring it back for him. And you wonder if perhaps Jesus himself is getting tired. But then you remember the words of the prophet Zechariah, who wrote about Israel's Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew a colt would be tied up and waiting, and his decision to ride into Jerusalem on that colt was not for his benefit, but for the benefit of those in Jerusalem. It was a sign that identified him as the Messiah, the promised king. You pause to catch your breath as some of the disciples remove their coats and place them across the back of the colt for a makeshift saddle. Still other disciples begin throwing their coats across the pathway, forming a carpeted walkway for this royal procession. As we get closer to the summit of the Mount of Olives, the crowd swells in size. Some follow the lead of the disciples, throwing their coats across the road. Others strip palm branches from nearby trees, hoping to blanket the pathway in a carpet of green. The joyous procession takes on a life of its own as it begins the descent down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. You're no longer out of breath, but you still have to pay close attention to the roadway. The palm branches are hiding both rocks and ruts in the road, and you're afraid of twisting an ankle or taking a nasty fall. Meanwhile, the colt seems oblivious to the obstacles as it picks its way down the hillside, carrying its royal passenger on its back. You quicken your pace to reach Jesus. It's getting more difficult because the crowd has grown into a massive throng. Someone started quoting Psalm 118, a psalm looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and soon the whole throng seems to be shouting it in unison. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You push your way forward, finally catching up to Jesus. You turn to look into his face, to make eye contact, to connect with him in a way that allows you to share in this incredible time of celebration and triumph by seeing it all through his eyes. And you discover Jesus is sobbing uncontrollably. Luke describes the scene this way. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The word for weeping that Luke chooses is not the one used to describe Jesus in John 11, the one that pictured gentle tears streaming down his face. The word used by Luke describes uncontrollable sobs of sorrow. But why is Jesus weeping while everyone else is so excited? Jesus is crying because as God, he knew the hearts of the people, and he knew the future. In just five days, this same crowd, now welcoming him as king, would shout to Pilate, Crucify him! 
We have no king but Caesar. Jesus could also see the coming destruction of Jerusalem that would take place because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The realization of what you're seeing snaps you back into reality. You freeze in place as the crowd surges past on its way down the mountain. The people are so wrapped up in the emotion of the moment, they haven't even bothered to look into the eyes of the one they are supposedly honoring. They're so busy celebrating the coming of the miracle worker that they fail to notice his tears and sobs. Matthew tells us that just two days after this event, Jesus delivered a final lament over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's time for us to head back home, but what lessons can we take back with us from this journey with Jesus over the Mount of Olives? I believe there are at least two. First, we caught a glimpse of Jesus' humanity and his deity. As a man, he wept over the death of a friend and the rejection of a city. But as God, he called that friend back from death to life and announced to the city what would take place five days and 35 years in the future. Second, we learned there are two times when Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is applied directly to Jesus. One is past and the other is future. The words were first shouted by the multitude on the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday. Sadly, the events of the next few days show that the crowd didn't really mean them. But Jesus said there will come a time when the words of Psalm 18 will be shouted aloud again by the people of Jerusalem. He was referring to his second coming, that time when his feet will again stand on the Mount of Olives as he comes to rescue and save his chosen people. The first Palm Sunday was a time of sorrow for Jesus. It launched a series of events that led to his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But there's another Palm Sunday in the future, a second triumphal entry into Jerusalem that will happen at his second coming. And this time, Jesus will not be weeping. You know, as I listen to these last sentences, Charlie, from the devotional, I've got goosebumps. Maybe you do too as you listen. Like to hear the devotional again? You can hear the whole program again at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for linking up with us today. Hope you tell a friend about The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. See you back next week for Moody Radio's The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.